So today the theme is spiritual progress in lay life. And we recently finished a almost two-week retreat at Cloud Mountain on this topic. So we should know what we're talking about. <laughs> At least have some ideas. Um, but we like to uh, really ground everything that we teach in the suttas. And today I want to talk, you know, frame this in a very conventional way, talking a little bit about sila and samadhi and panya and how that develops in lay life. And I think maybe the most important thing to reflect upon is that at the time of the Buddha, all the way until now, many people awaken in lay life. And in the Theravadan tradition, <clears throat> the um, this sort of position is that people can uh, realize these levels of awakening you know stream entry uh once returning non-returning and then when they when a lay person gets to the point of realizing nibbana and completely becoming an arahant they either quickly ordain or they die <laughs> And, it, and it, it is the case, we understand from the teachings that the, the process of dying is very powerful. It's a very powerful time, and you can get enlightened at that, in that process. So maybe that's a little bit what happens. <laughs> I'm not sure. But the Buddha said you can also get enlightened in the interval. So after the consciousness leaves the body, it's another opportunity to awaken. Upon landing in the next life, another opportunity awaken, and so on. Shortly after that, <laughs> so it's good to remember that uh, basically, don't take being in lay life as any kind of an impediment. We can choose how we want to live our life, moment to moment, and we can make progress on a path um, through our through our own our own faith, our own. Um, you know, intention, our own diligence. And every step of the way we get to see the results. So it's not just like, and I'm so glad, it's not just like you strive, 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 and then at the end, it's <laughs> suddenly. Um, so I want to talk about um, about the, the process a little of from that, you know, beginning to end of the spiritual path and how that unfolds uh, in lay life or how it can. There's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya in the Book of Elevens. You'll see something similar in other places, but I want to share this one with you. It's called Making a Wish. And how many people know this? It's Anguttara Nikaya 11.2, Making a Wish. How many people are familiar with this discord? Oh, this is lovely. We get to share this new thing. So <clears throat> I'm just going to read it. Mendicants. And this is, uh, by the way, this is uh, Bhikkhu Sujato's 
translation uh, that you can find on Sutta Central. And we also use a lot of Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. And of course, um, he's one of our teachers and we love, we love his uh, take on the Dhamma. Um, and it's wonderful to be able to look at more than one translation of suttas because until we really understand some of the Pali terms, uh, we, it's, it's helpful to get uh, different, different ways of expressing what's in the Pali. Also on suttacentral.net, everything's available for free. And that was the motivation of creating that website that Bhante Sujato felt that we really want to have all the translations of the Dhamma available to people, uh, translations of the Pali suttas available, Vinaya, Abhidhamma, it's all there, available to people free of charge. So it's handy. You can go look up things anytime. And if you look at, um, there are they put translations that are available um, free from copyright on there from other translators as well. But if you look at Bhante Sujato's, the Paul, you can, you can set the uh, preferences so that you can see both Pali and English if you're interested. You can click on Pali words and it'll go right to the dictionary. It's a great way to start absorbing some of the the Pali and in, it's not it's not like you have to learn Pali grammar, but maybe just some of the more potent terms that you find in Pali that we just don't have a good English equivalent for. So just uh, hopefully a little encouragement in that direction. So another thing that Bhante Sujato did is uh, bring some gender neutral language into the translation. So that's also um, appreciated by some of us. <laughs> so he says, mendicants, this is, what, this is the Buddha uh, talking, mendicants, an ethical person who has fulfilled ethical conduct need not make a wish, may I have no regrets. It's only natural that an ethical person has no regrets. I'm tempted to just read the whole thing and then talk about it. Let's see how that goes. When you have no regrets, you need not make a wish, may I feel joy. It's only natural that joy springs up when you have no regrets. When you feel joy, you don't need to make the wish, may I experience rapture? This is PT. We'll talk about these terms in a minute. It's only natural that rapture arises when you're joyful. When your mind is full of rapture, you don't need to make the wish, may my body become tranquil. It's only natural for the body to become tranquil when your mind is full of rapture. When your body is tranquil, you don't need to make the wish, may I feel bliss. It's only natural to feel bliss when your body is tranquil. When you feel bliss, you don't need to make the wish, may my mind be immersed in samadhi. It's only natural for the mind to become immersed in samadhi when you feel bliss. When your mind is immersed in samadhi, you don't have to make the wish, may I truly know and see. It's only natural 
to truly know and see when the mind is immersed in samadhi. When you truly know and see, you don't have to make the wish, may I grow disillusioned. It's only natural to grow disillusioned when you truly know and see. When you're disillusioned, you need not make the wish, may I become dispassionate. It's only natural to grow dispassionate when you're disillusioned. When you're dispassionate, you need not make a wish, may I realize the knowledge and vision of freedom. It's only natural to realize the knowledge and vision of freedom when you're dispassionate. And then the Buddha takes you through going backwards. And so mendicants, the knowledge and vision of freedom is the purpose and benefit of dispassion. Dispassion is the purpose and benefit of disillusionment. Disillusionment is the purpose and benefit of knowing, truly knowing and seeing. Truly knowing and seeing is the purpose and benefit of immersion. Immersion is the purpose and benefit of bliss. Bliss is the purpose and benefit of tranquility. Tranquility is the purpose and benefit of rapture. Rapture is the purpose and benefit of joy. Joy is the purpose and benefit of not having regrets. Not having regrets is the purpose and benefit of skillful ethics. And so mendicants, good qualities flow on and fill up from one to the other for going from the near, near shore to the far shore. So it starts with virtue and it ends in enlightenment. And to think, okay, it's just natural that it moves along this course. But wouldn't it all be finished already for all of us? <laughs> so easy. So it's worth looking at each of these steps, if you will, each of these um, levels of unfolding or you know, natural results. And if we start with the first one, and one of the things that I love about EFOD is how um, much emphasis and attention is paid to keeping the precepts and talking about moral virtue, because it's so true that we make very little progress if we're continuing to maintain habits of breaking those moral precepts. It's very hard to sit down and have deep meditation if we have to worry about some lie that we told and is anybody going to find out or whatever it might be. And yet there are habits, patterns that can be really hard to let go of to, to change. But what I think is more of a impediment is that a lot of times our seal is pretty good. And the Buddha was all about rehabilitation. And if we make a mistake, you know, we really want to acknowledge it, forgive, learn from it, recommit. It's like, this is the nature of the holy life. This is the nature of lay life too. You know, you learn from what happens. And you learn how to change your habits. It's possible to change. It has to be possible to, to change. We're not going to be the same when we're arahants as we are right now. And it's good to recognize that, hey, yeah, even this 
habit that I have to exaggerate a little or whatever it might be, we can change that. Um, someone just asked me yesterday when we were up in Seattle, they said, you know, I, I have this tendency to you know, have a little white lie here and there because I want to avoid the social discomfort or something. And I want to change that, you know, and, you know, I don't know how to do it. It seems like it comes out of my mouth and I'm, <laughs> and so I said, you know, the, the, I also had this um, challenge and when I was a lay person and I wanted to change it. And what I did was I said, as soon as you catch this, even if you've already said it, stop and say, no, wait a minute, that's not quite right. For me, it would be like a little bit of exaggeration or something. It's like, and, and, then, and then say, oh no, that's not quite right. And then go back and say, it, say the truth. And, and every time we do that, we're training that part of our mind that has that automatic like pattern differently and it works. And, and one time I was invited to give a talk right in that period when I was really working with that, uh, I was asked to give a talk to this small group of this little Christian church. And I was, get, as I was talking, I wanted to know about you know, what I was doing with my life and in uh, Buddhism. And, and um, as I was talking, there were a few times when I stopped and I restated what I was saying. And someone talked to me about that afterward. They say, boy, you're so committed to the truth. And I'm really like, this is, so don't think that, oh, I'm making mistakes and now I'm making them clear to the world. <laughs> Realize that, you know, taking up a practice like that can be inspiring for other people. And it really is about dedication to the truth and a certain amount of self-confidence that we can, we can change. And so that's one issue. These habits that may have been hanging around in our lives, in our minds for a long time, in our history, in you know, who, who we were watching when we were like before we could talk and what they were doing or or maybe even from past lives who knows and who cares the question is what do i want to change and how i'm going to do it and then seeing the good results but even more than that even if our seal is really pretty good are we free from regret and one of the habits, one of the patterns that I inherited from who knows where, I mean, some places, but some parts of it are obvious, is to have regret anyway. It's like, well, the fact is the religion I was raised with, the, the teaching quite literally was you're in right relationship with God when you're at the bottom of the mountain, basically crying because you're such a terrible sinner. Even though you're nine years old and you haven't done a thing wrong, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? That's pretty dark. I hope most of you didn't start out that way. <laughs> but just in case, <laughs> you can even overcome that one. <laughs> and in our culture, there is so much emphasis on perfection on um 
I think feeling bad about ourselves, we so much go over the things we've done wrong. We don't do nearly as much to encourage ourselves generally. But when you read the suttas, you see the Buddha encouraging us to really reflect on what we're doing that's good. And even this is part of like these reflections that he suggests that we use over and over again. He said, reflect on the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dhamma, the good qualities of the Sangha, and your own virtue. All your good qualities, the things that you do that are correct and beautiful. Um, When someone talks about how bad they feel about themselves, you know, I really try to encourage them at the end of the day. Think of all the things that you did that were good. Think of all the things that you didn't do that were bad. And then if you did things that were, let's say, bad, think of how you're planning you're going to change it. And you're acknowledging that. And this is the Buddha said, this is what brings progress in the spiritual life. When we acknowledge what has happened, sometimes we learn more from the mistakes, we have a firmer commitment going forward than if we just happen to be doing a pretty good job all the time. (laughs) So don't ever feel like that's holding you back. And then this kind of, kind of negative feeling about ourselves that we can carry or this admonishment that we might have a pattern with in our minds that we've got to learn how to drop that, how to turn that around. Because I don't know about you, but I was really good at feeling regret over things that weren't even wrong. Has anybody got this experience? You know, like, oh, that I said that, and that was kind of stupid, or, you know, or even if people didn't like what I said, you know, it's like, just because it doesn't play well, doesn't mean you did something wrong. (laughs) Um, And then I ran across this discourse, the Buddha was talking to the mendicants, and he said, if there are four kinds of people, you know how the Buddha I don't know if you know, but the Buddha will say something like this. There are four kinds of people. And along some dimension of human behavior, he'll divide, you know, everything into four. Uh, You you fit into one of these categories somehow. He said, there's the person who does something against their precepts. And they feel regret over it. There's the person who does something against the precepts and they feel no regret over it. There's the person who doesn't do anything against the precepts and they feel regret over it. And there's the person who doesn't do anything against the precepts and they feel no regret. (laughs) Now, where do you fall at least part of the time? You know, we could be in different categories at different times, but, you know, I'm thinking about that third one and I'm going, man, that that really... (laughs) It's a shame. Um, but was, what was interesting is that the Buddha said, when someone does something wrong and feels regret over it, there are defilements that are born of that thing that they've done wrong. 
and there are defilements that are born of the regret that they feel. And they should be encouraged to let go of both. You get to the person who's done something wrong and they feel no regret. He says, there are defilements born of the thing they did wrong. And you should encourage them to let go of that. I would have thought that would be a worse case, <laughs> but no, it's like, we give up, give up what is born of the regret and what we've done wrong. With the person who hasn't done anything wrong and they feel regret, there are defilements born of that kind of regret. He said, encourage them to let go of that. Of course, for the last case, woohoo, no problem. <laughs> They don't need that kind of encouragement. Just pat them on the back. Good on you. <laughs> Keep going. So that led me to think about, well, what kind of regret is this unproductive regret? And it's a different Pali word, vipat, vipatisara. It's a different Pali term than like hiri, which is conscience and otapa, which is prudence. Hiri being recognizing that there's a, a kind of, um, like, I don't want to do that wrong thing. And otapa is like, I don't want the, I don't want the results of the karma of what, you know, doing wrong things. So those two are the Buddha said, are the guardians of the world, when we really have a, 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 an operating sensitive conscience, this is a good thing. But it's not an unproductive regret that we cling to about the past. So this is um, thinking about this and looking at our patterns and um, making changes, this is how we get to this place where it's natural. That when we've been ethical, that we have no regret. The mind is free. It's free. And that starts us on this trajectory of joy. And you know, we got the first kind of joy is pomoja which is kind of a delight in what's good. If um, the word pomoja comes up when, you know, someone has faith, and this is another way that the sequence can start is with faith. And the faith that, oh, there's a way out of suffering. Oh, wow. I know, I know someone who said she discovered the Four Noble Truths when she was a teen, very, very, difficult life as a teenager and a lot of suffering and when she saw the four noble truths and it said there's dukkha basically and there's a way out of dukkha and that that did it for her she was just she already had the faith of that you know this is like finally someone's admitting there is dukkha here you know so, and there is this way out of suffering so pomoja is that kind of joy it's um, it's more of a, of 
natural joy arising from goodness. And, and then from there, it's experiencing PT, which is also sometimes translated as joy. So we've got joy and happiness coming up here three or four times. <laughs> it's like, don't think that the Buddha's path is about suffering. Suffering's the red flag. And that's what we can use to leverage ourselves out of the pit. <laughs> but really the path is full of joy and happiness. And this is, this is how we progress. Lay life or monastic, doesn't matter. This is how we progress. And you see the PT as a spiritual joy, spiritual delight, sometimes calling it rapture. It can give the impression that it's always really intense, but it's not always really intense. When you're meditating and you're getting still and you start to feel some warmth or some feeling of fullness or some tingling somewhere, just you get used to the kinds of energy feelings that come when you start to get more and more still. And all of that is PT. Having kind of a softness somewhere. Um, PT is um, a mental feeling, but you can feel the experience of it or the expression of it in the body. And so, you know, the PT is natural. What comes from that is the body becomes really tranquil. How many of you feel that when you're meditating? Your body can get really tranquil. Yeah. And so there's probably some PT there too, even if you haven't been you know, haven't heard any kind of explanation of how that's experienced. And then when the body becomes really calm, really tranquil, then we start to feel sukha, which here is bliss. Bliss again makes it sound like it's really wah, and it can be, <laughs> but it can also just be a very, very lovely, pleasant spiritual energy feeling. And you can feel this sukha. Sukha means pleasure, pleasant feeling. It's opposite of dukkha. And you've, this sukha and PT can occur at the same time. All of these things can actually be happening at the same time. It's not like you really need to lose each one as you go, as you see the next piece unfold. But it's this is what leads to the mind becoming still. I like. Immersion is an okay translation. Concentration nowadays, people feel like it doesn't really capture what samadhi is because it, it's got this tendency to bring up for us, especially us goal-driven Westerners, to like really bear down and focus. And so samadhi is much more about letting go, opening up becoming really peaceful. Um, I like Ajahn Jaya Saro's translation when he in stillness flowing, Ajahn Chah's biography of lucid calm, because there's very bright mindfulness there always. So it's not a floaty kind of thing. It's clarity, calm. And so the samadhi is the condition for insight, 
seeing, knowing and seeing. So this um, Pali is yata bhutang janami, pasami. And it's not always this particular compound um, in this case, but here it's this uh, to, to know, to know the truth, to um, experience the reality, the real essence of something, to experience it, to see it in the sense of to understand it. And so this is, this is like gaining um, an insight. It's a bit preliminary. It's not like full on Nibbana, but it's the, it's the kind of initial or fundamental part of seeing reality. For example, a lot of times the, the one that's described in the suttas often is really seeing that everything that arises ceases, that there is impermanence. You might see that there's something like some kind of insight around impermanence or suffering or not self. But it's like there's, oh, there's something that strikes us at a deep level, really settles in our, in our, um, in our mind. And when there's insight, there's, it comes with a, some kind of feeling. You know, you get the kind of the message and the felt sense. And when that happens, it's important to really remember that log that in your mind the the insight itself and the feeling that came with it so that you can come back to it again and again and bring it up in your meditation and reflect on it let it really cook and see where it takes you but this kind of understanding whatever shape it is comes in this kind of knowing and seeing then causes this um, end to some degree of the illusion or the enchantment with the world. Like if you, let's take an, any example, like we see maybe because of you know, our practice and maybe some profound event. We have a death of a, someone close to us and we see that some of the things we've spent our time on are just not worth it. They're not an interest to us anymore. That interest in that fades. And so the, the next thing, this disillusionment, um, so you grow disillusioned or disenchanted. And then the next thing is this dispassion. And the word for that is viraga. And viraga can also mean fading away. And I sometimes use this example that I heard Bantianalio use. He said when he was tra in training as a monk in Sri Lanka, someone brought this beautiful cloth. It was this batik, beautiful colors design. It's just beautiful and they put it on on a table that he walked past when he would go in the morning for his food and he would see this cloth and it's just like you just want to look at it he said it's just so beautiful but then it's out in the weather and the sun and the rain and it's just getting faded and kind of dirty and after a while it's like that 
that interest in it i mean it just fades along with the cloth you know it's just you just now it's a rag you can you know it's nothing worth our attention and this is what can happen um, with some of the things we've been impassionate impassioned over or um, you know so, so excited about in the world and then we see that there's something much better to put our mind on our time in and to fill the heart with and so this kind of this passion occurs along the path to liberation and then before you know it we have the knowledge and vision of freedom <laughs> enlightenment and so, you know, like we can see this, um, this sequence happen in small ways before, you know, full awakening, but to recognize that it's a natural progression and that the things that we can do ourselves to set this in motion and recognize where our patterns our habits our um maybe some delusion can interrupt that natural process and that we can change that now there's a very beautiful sutta um, that i often bring up so you might have heard me talk about it before in the middle length discourses it's called the Saleka Sutta or effacement. It's about rubbing away the defilements. And the Buddha gives, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but the Buddha gives like five steps really of taking whatever it is that we find challenging and seeing the that that is a rough road, that that leads to a lot of distress and that there is a smooth road that we can take instead. <clears throat> and I'll just use the example of anger, for instance. He said, if you're prone to anger, then you use non-anger as the way out. Well, that's a big help. Thanks, Buddha. <laughs> so, you know, the, the rest is left to the reader or the practitioner to figure that out. But if we can recognize how when we start to notice anger arising, what can we do that's different from deciding to go with it? And um, thanks to a talk I heard Ajahn Jayasaro give once a long time ago, maybe more than maybe 25 years now, but he said, put a wedge of awareness in there. I like that idea of a wedge. You just get that thin edge in there and you've already got some prying going on, you know. A wedge of awareness keeps us from taking action on that unwholesome mental state. And then we start to pay attention to that mental state, not the content, but where it is in the body. Until we can get to the place where we're without anger. So non-anger, non-something, whatever it is, that's so much more powerful than you might imagine and it's it's not going directly to oh well what's the opposite of anger or it's love or compassion or something you don't have to go that far you can just be without anger without ill will 
without greed, without jealousy as a step, as a way to overcome those miserable mental states that we all experience at one time or another and that we can make that choice and we can have our own kind of little you know process that we follow not trying to cover it up not trying to you know spiritually bypass it not think oh well i'm i should be above this i've been a nun for god knows how many years <laughs> i was like i shouldn't have these feelings no that does no good at all <laughs> just turning towards it if enough mindfulness is there you can go whoa look at that <laughs> but you don't have to be in it or following it or feeding it that's important you can really just let that move through try to understand what we're clinging to and try to understand that this is also a natural process that we can make into something that leads to mastery over our own mind mastery over our experience it's not about what arises it's what we do with it you know if that anger arises if a flash of jealousy arises it's okay as long as we're like holding it out here in front of us and going whoa look at that and i can be present with that feeling until it goes away I don't have to take action on that. When, when in our mind, we are already saying no to these unskillful states of mind, then there's this opportunity for skillful states of mind to arise. This is like, this is the way to make progress for every one of us, no matter how far we are along in the path, no matter how far we'd like to be or how you know like we think oh well i'm a hopeless mess that's not going to help <laughs> none of us has to feel like that it's always just okay whatever comes up we can handle it we can train ourselves learn have the confidence to be present with that and really know that difference what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? This is where delusion can be a problem. But when we get that clarity, and, and really the Buddha lays it out so clearly. In that sutta, it's number eight in the Majjhima Nikaya, he talks about 44 different things. It starts with, others will be cruel, but we will not be cruel here. And then it goes through another 43 things. And it's nice because when we're suffering, we can look at a list like that and kind of like, okay, where, where's the, what flavor of suffering is this? <laughs> and how might I take the smooth path? And then there's five steps. And by the time you get to the end, that tendency has completely vanished. It's completely over. I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but you will. When you look back and you go, yeah, I used to react like that. And now, that hasn't happened in a long time. We can't necessarily say for sure it's never going to happen again. But at least by that time, we know what to do with it if it does. <laughs>